places can contain pieces of our souls. A Sandman Potvik, Part 3 of The Reasons Verse Written by Blue Sunshine and read by Literarian Chapter 10 Matthew Lucienne startles the raven, who squawks and skitters, before recognizing her and ruffling his feathers sheepishly. Lucienne waits patiently, peering down at the bird. Matthew bobs a little. Oh, hey, Lucienne, what's up? He prints answerly, puffing up his chest as he stands more upright, as if to impress. Lucienne arches a brow. What is up indeed? She remarks wryly, given that they are standing on a rocky path, Lord Morpheus standing some ways ahead of them in a barren dell, overlooking the river and the sprawling grey hills that had been fitless green and was waiting to be once again. The sky is a pale, pearly blue that is in itself almost grey, glazed over with wispy clouds that attempt a faint rainbow shimmer. The river is a deep, slumbering green today, and a few gleaming butterflies wing over it like hazy sparks. He's been standing there all day, Lucienne remarks worriedly. Whatever is the matter now? She's barely relieved that at least it has stopped snowing to the sudden season complaints from many residents. She's seen it rain torrentially in the dreaming when her lord was ill of mood, but snow? That had been frighteningly new. As it was, the realm remained unusually cold, the breeze lacking its usual wild and whimsy, and instead gusting or else sighing or else stiflingly still. To say nothing of the unexpected additions? She has never seen her lord so destructive as the temper that overtakes him for those unwanted creations, and she could not bear how the entire realm seemed to shudder when he tried and failed to be rid of them. And what was worse was that his temper seems aimed at himself. Lucienne is doing her best. Matthew is doing his best, but at times, oh, she misses Jessamie. Her counsel was always insightful, if not necessarily wise, and none had been able to turn or distract Lord Morpheus from his moods, nor tease out the heart of them as Jessamie had. He was just so unwilling to talk. How then could they solve this if all Lucienne could do was guess and wait and hope and bear the brunt of his prickly ego in the meantime? I think this is good, actually, Matthew remarks, hopping a little. Lucienne blinks, brow furrowing. This is good, she queries. Matthew twitches his wings. Well, yeah. 
His friend seems all and awful impressed with it, so I think it's got him trying to look at it differently. Lord Morpheus, I mean. Lucienne peers at the raven, and then at Lord Morpheus's back, as his long coat flutters, and he lifts a hand to offer a perch for a butterfly to rest upon. It deigns to do little more than tickle his fingers before fluttering away, and Dream of the Endless turns to watch it pass him by, a look of contemplation writ across his face. I see, Lucienne murmurs, and hopes. Johanna is sitting at her nan's dining table, a heavy polished oak antique of a thing, marred and scratched by generations of unruly Constantine children. She's eating a peach cobbler right out of her childhood. The table, however, is sitting on a boardwalk, the boardwalk winding over dark water. Dream is sitting across from her. This is a dream, she recognizes aloud, accepting the strange conflation of elements in the way one accepts the strangeness of their dreams. She can smell the peach cobbler, warm and buttery and sweet, just as she can feel the damp in the air from the fog overhead and the water below. She takes a bite and it is comfort and joy and nostalgia and perfect. She's in the clothes she remembers wearing today, save a cloak of midnight draped over her shoulders. Is this my doing or yours? She asks, dream of the endless. He seems different here, less mortal. The cast of his skin is like moonlight on silk, his hair wild and defiant and gleaming like beetle's wings and raven's feathers and the darkness behind your eyes when you close them. His eyes are a deep, glimmering indigo. Not blue, but not quite that hollow, star-shining black either. Mine he answers her almost reluctantly. I brought an offering. He nods towards the cobbler that came right out of her childhood. Johanna doesn't know whether to smirk or to pity his apparent discomfort. Are you learning how to do this whole friends thing from Hobbes example? Is it not to your liking? Johanna takes another bite of her cobbler and sighs sweetly. Hobbes example, she says, swallowing and feeling the warmth of it seep through her, is perfect. He seems a little less rigid at that. Have a slice and tell me why you've brought me here with an offering, Johanna instructs, turning the pie plate and somehow not surprised at all that there is simply another plate setting where he sits, where she was sure there hadn't been, the incongruity so seamless it in fact seemed perfectly natural. 
he is strangely obedient. And Johanna observes that perhaps he is also slightly fussy as he serves himself a perfect slice and takes a tiny bite. It is, however, a bite he seems to enjoy. He almost even seems to smile. She always made you cobbler when she wanted you to keep a secret, he remarks. If she were awake, perhaps Johanna would feel a thrill of alarm and bristle with offence at how prying that knowledge seemed that he knew that, that her nan's peach cobbler was a little promise between them, a bribe really, when Johanna learned things her mother might rather she didn't, or when Nan had gone and done something that would send Grandad into a strop, and Johanna was going to grin and cover for her, as if they wouldn't foil themselves by giggling about it together later. But she isn't awake to feel that alarm whisper from her spine to her fingertips, for her stomach to drop and her jaw to harden with the fierce desire to guard her every weakness. And you did bring me my nan's peach cobbler because you want me to keep a secret for you? Johanna questions instead. I thought it might please you to bring you something you missed. And are we getting to the why? Johanna rolls sceptically. Pretty sure I asked for the why. He stares at her grumpily, draw sharp ass glass and then looks away, over the dark water. Unlike her painting, there are no teasing lights off in the distance. She finds this place a little more eerie than her painting, but she likes it still. I think I have a fondness for empty places, she remarks offhand, in dreams lingering stillness and reluctance to provide a forthcoming answer. It's one of the things she likes about Hobbes landscapes, all those stark, ethereal scenes. There was something comforting to the absence of them, something almost reverently peaceful in the way only empty, quiet places could be. It's funny, she likes empty churches and empty parks just the same way. Oh, he's staring at her now. Again. Why? he asks. I don't know, Johanna shrugs, looking away again when looking at him proves too uncomfortable, as the longer she looks into those eyes, the deeper they seem to get, both fascinating and dangerous. There's always room for you in empty places, isn't there? It's a relief, I suppose. It can be hard for people like us to find room for ourselves in the world. People like us? Dream questions, leaning forward at the table, truly curious of her strange little musings. People who aren't what the world expects them to be, Johanna says, sighing it out. Is that so rare? he questions, pulling back a bit, seeming doubtful, seeming knowing when Johanna flickers him a glance. 
Nah, she says. Nah, I don't think it's rare at all. I think most people aren't what the world expects them to be. I think we all just go around pretending and hoping no one notices till we're finally alone and it's safe to simply be who we are. Dream listens to her words and something in him just seems to dim. Do you crave loneliness? He inquires, almost sadly. Johanna scoffs. I crave solitude. All the time. Well, most of the time. She thinks of Hob and how it wasn't so bad these days that maybe she didn't crave it so often. But no one craves loneliness. But you do wish to be alone, he remarks, skeptical of her distinction. No, not exactly. God, how do you explain humanity to a being that simply is not human? He may wear the shape of a man, but he was not and never had been one. And why, for the love of heaven, was Johanna the one who had to explain it? People crave the feeling they get when they're alone, until they find other people who give them that same feeling. People who let them just be. It's like, all right, I like Hop because he doesn't give a damn if I'm a mess or that I regularly do some things that are in fact very illegal or that I leave cursed objects lying around my flat or that most of the people around me tend to get hurt. He doesn't treat me like the unreliable shit of a person that I am and he doesn't try and fix me for being an unreliable shit of a person. He likes to feed me, he likes my sense of humor, and he likes it when I call him on his bullshit because he will make stuff up just to see how far he can stretch what I'll believe actually happened in the 15th century. He likes that he can tell me about all the things in the world no one else would ever believe and that I'll listen. I give a damn that he talks to me. And that bizarre exchange of just accepting that we are absolutely all kinds of messed up and giving a damn about each other anyways, that's what makes us friends. People crave being given a damn about, and at the same time we crave not having to give a damn about anything. And it's hard to have either one of those things, let alone both. Sometimes being alone is just as close as we can get. Johanna, having said her piece, takes a deep breath and shovels cobbler in her mouth while watching thoughts clearly percolate through dreams perpetually unkempt head from the corner of her eye. And this place, he says after a time, looking out over the winding dock and the dark water and the silver fog above. Does it make you feel lonely, or does it make you feel alone? He looks to her again, something beseeching understanding in his gaze. I'm not either of those things, mate, Johanna says, swallowing another perfectly warm bite of fresh cobbler. Not with you here. Now, maybe the third time's the charm. Why am I here? Whatever understanding he was beseeching her for, Apparently, he finds some semblance of it, 
as his gaze lights and an inscrutably thoughtful look casts over his face. Thank you, Johanna Constantine. He stands, dipping his head faintly. That wasn't an... She wakes up, curled into the corner of her sofa under the shroud that had once been Dream's cloak. Answer, she finishes, sighing aggrievedly and brushing her fingers through her hair. This was, she decides, Hop's fault. Somehow, 